You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for worshiping with us on this beautiful Mother's Day. Uh, this morning has probably seemed like a normal day in your house. Lots of chaos, lots of screaming children. That's how it feels in mine. And it's exciting and a lot of fun to have moments like this. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts today. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. And today we're looking at this idea of God and justice. As we look at this passage to catch you up on where we're at in the book of Acts, we're entering into the story in the final portion of the book of Acts. And in this, Paul is now going to trial. He's been in prison at this point for two years. He has been waiting for another trial, an opportunity to show what God is doing in his world. Yet he's been experiencing this real injustice. He's stuck in a prison cell. He has no opportunity to get out. He is trapped here in Caesarea, and he's been there for two years. Those screams of injustice, something that we think is just wrong in the basic sense of the usage of the word. And you and I probably empathize with Paul in some way. While perhaps we've never had a two-year solitary confinement that we've experienced, we have together experienced injustice in some way. Whether it's minor or major, you and I can point back moments in our lives. We've experienced things that we would say are injustice. We've been wronged when we were innocent. We've been wronged we were taken advantage of. I don't have to give you a laundry list of those things. You probably have something you're thinking of even now of, man, that was a moment where I was a victim. Like I was innocent and I I was wronged and it shouldn't have happened this way. How do we respond to that? How do we live in the midst of a world that's broken, that's messed up, and is consistently acting out in a way that hurts us? I think Paul is an example of how we're to live and function in light of that. See, Paul understands something. He recognizes that at the end of this story, God is going to be the one who brings final justice, who brings the final judgment we see in the book of Revelation. And he rests in this basic idea that God is just and he will ultimately rule and reign over all. And so as we look at this passage today, in light of that, we're going to have to understand some things about how we respond to injustice. Now, with that, we want to look at the scriptures and see what God's word has in store for us. If you've got your Bible, you can flip over to Acts chapter 25, or you can read the verses. It'll be on the screen for us. Look with me at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Let's hit Paul's right here for just a moment. So as we've said, Paul's been in prison here for two years and he's got a new governor. So his new governor is a man named Festus. And once again, the Jewish leaders have come before this Roman governor and they're asking him, would you do us a favor? Would you bring Paul from Caesarea over to Jerusalem so we can have the trial there? It sounds like an innocuous thing, right? But their goal here is to kill him. They want to have Paul on the road where they can ambush him and kill him. And so they ask this new governor, Festus, using the same language they asked the previous governor, Felix, hey, would you mind doing us a favor and getting Paul out of the way so we can murder him? Now, 
We continue on in this passage, verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he, that is Festus, went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. So if you remember from last week, the same basic pattern plays out here. The Jewish leaders come before the Roman governor and they offer a lot of different charges, a lot of different things they say that Paul is guilty of. And what is Paul's defense? Just as last time, his defense is this. These things that they say that I've done, these laws they say I've broken, that is the laws of the Jewish leaders, the laws of the temple, the laws of the Roman authority, I've done nothing. I've done none of that. I'm an innocent man. They've got a very weak case, and Paul rather concretely shows the new governor, Festus, I'm innocent. We would think the story would end, but this injustice continues. It grows even deeper in verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Right here we've got yet another ruler who is trying to get on the good side of the Jewish leaders. This is the same language that Felix actually used with Paul previously. He's asking, would you mind doing a favor and going to Jerusalem? Maybe he's whispering some words like, I'll protect you. You'll be okay. But would you mind going to Jerusalem and helping me out with the Jewish leaders? Festus needs some help from the Jewish leaders. Historically, as we look back on this time, right now in history, he's dealing with a massive rebellion here in Israel. There are people who are actually fighting against Roman rule. And for a governor, the way that you maintain your governorship is by promoting Pax Romana, that is Roman peace. At the end of the day, how do you ensure Roman peace is there? You stamp out all rebellion and say, you abide by our laws or the legions, the Roman soldiers are coming for you. Well, to this point, the Roman soldiers have not gotten the job done and Festus is in hot water. He's willing, frankly, to do anything to keep his job. Just as a side note, we know from history he fails miserably and is deposed from his governorship less than three years later. By deposed, I mean he's beheaded by the Roman centurion that leads the legions, and there's a new governor appointed. Festus knows he's in trouble, and he makes this appeal before Paul, would you mind doing me a favor and going to Jerusalem? Now, perhaps Paul knows something is changing. There's, there's something against him in this moment. In verse 10, we get Paul's response. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. 
I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul is here, he's stuck in the cycle yet again of a ruler who's trying to make friends with the Jewish leaders. Maybe he feels there's some imminent danger coming to him. Maybe he's unwilling to repeat this cycle again. But what does he do? He does the only thing that he can do. He appeals to Caesar. You see, within the Roman Empire, there is a law, a rule, that anyone who is a Roman citizen, they can appeal to have their case heard before the emperor. If things are going poorly against you, if you're on trial, if you think that you've got something that's worth displaying, you can appeal to the emperor himself, and you can go before the very emperor of the Roman Empire and say, here's my case. You decide. That's the final verdict. It's like going to the Supreme Court. This is going to give us our answer. Now, for context, the current empire at the time of this writing is a man named Nero. Nero was not loved at all. In fact, through most of the Roman Empire, he was actually despised. Most Roman citizens did not appreciate Nero. Nero in this time is also proving to be a great enemy of the Christians. You see, during his reign, that led to a greater persecution of the Christian church. As is Paul's right, he's granted this ability to go before the emperor. He's willing to take his chances against this great enemy of the church to finally close, to conclude his trial. Now, as we've read through these verses, you might be asking the question, well, Walter, what what are we supposed to learn from Paul here? What here in the book of Acts are we able to learn to understand about God, about justice? What does God's word say about injustice for us? Well, you see, I believe as we look through this section of Scripture and we look through the book of Acts as a whole, we can actually use Paul's life as an example, as an illustration that will give us hope and encouragement that we can have in times of injustice. Paul shows us exactly how we're to live when we are in difficulty, we're in trial, we're in suffering. Paul shows us what we're to do. And so if you're here and you're taking notes, I want you to write down some of these points as we begin. First, I want you to remember that God is working. See, at first glance, it seems like God has fallen asleep at the wheel here, right? I mean, Paul feels like his only recourse, his last option, is to call upon the emperor to do something that maybe we feel like God should have already worked out, right? Paul's here in prison. He's been here for two years. Shouldn't God fix this? Shouldn't he restore Paul to his rightful position? Why should Paul have to appeal to the emperor of all people? Yet, as we look at this, doesn't this decision by Paul put him exactly where God intended for him to be? I don't know if you remember back in Acts chapter 23, there's a verse that we see in the scriptures that give us some clarity in what God is doing here. You see, in Acts 23 verse 11, Paul is told by the voice of God, by God himself, that he is to go share the gospel in Rome. You'll see it on the screen. I'll read it for us. The following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul has wanted for years to go to Rome to encourage the saints there. 
he felt like God was calling him there and he began to take steps to go. And here in chapter 23, verse 11, we have God telling him that this imprisonment that he's facing then in Jerusalem is not a hindrance to him going to Rome. No, in fact, this imprisonment is actually the very thing that will take Paul to Rome before the emperor himself to make his appeal before the throne of the greatness of God. I mean, isn't this an incredibly mind-blowing thing to think that Paul's intention was to go to Rome to share the goodness of the gospel and here by God's working together all things for his good, he is now going before the very emperor of the Roman Empire to proclaim the truth of who God is and what he has done. It's astounding. Yet, as we study through the scriptures, this isn't the only time that God has used injustice to bring about his will. All we have to do is look back to Jesus himself. All we have to do is look back to Jesus himself. What did Jesus experience? The injustice he experienced in this world. False accusations. Leaders seeking their own gain. I mean, the the list is massive. Jesus dealt with it all. Everything. Peter actually tells us earlier in the book of Acts that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's plan was to do this, was to use this injustice that will be perpetrated upon Jesus to deliver his people from sin. Jesus bore the weight of the injustice that he experienced so that we could receive justice from God. You see, Jesus chose to stand in our place to bear the weight of sin and shame as an innocent man who did not deserve anything that was done to him. Why? He chose to suffer for you and for I. He chose to bear the weight of injustice so that we might experience justice. God, in his wisdom and power, is using this unfair circumstance with Jesus, with Paul, with so many other men and women through the history of the Bible, so many men and women through the history of the world, He's using these unfair circumstances to accomplish his purposes. He's using these challenges, these trials, these tribulations, not as punishment, not as a failing on our part, but as a moment to display his power, his wisdom, his majesty, and to work his will out for his good, for his glory, and ultimately for our good. I think it's fair to say that we just simply, we don't always understand why these things happen to us. I I know that's true. We don't understand why we experience difficulties, why we have trials, why we have suffering, why we experience injustice. We don't always understand the plan here. Sometimes we think it would probably go a little bit simpler and easier if we had less of a bumpy road. Yet, if we believe that God is who he says he is, then perhaps he's working all things together for the good of those who believe you see when we deal with challenges with suffering with injustice this is an opportunity for us to remember that God is working in our world he is a God who is living and active he is not silent he is at work in your life and in my life and in our world this isn't the only thing we can learn from Paul You see, Paul shows us throughout 
the book of Acts, through these opportunities to minister the gospel, he shows us that we are to love our enemies. That we are to love our enemies. See, while Paul's in prison, Paul's a very confounding guy to imprison. You know, you tell him you're going to kill him, and he says, to die is Christ. Okay, we're going to let you live. And he says, to live is gain. We're good. We're good. You can't, you can't rock him. You can't challenge him in these moments. But while he's in prison, Paul seems to be more concerned with the spiritual condition of his jailers than he does about getting out of prison. How many times do we see Paul in prison? Well, he's doing what? He's not planning a daring escape plan where he's going to tunnel behind the poster outside the walls and escape. No, he's singing hymns. He's praying. He's having conversations with his jailers. We just saw with the previous governor, Felix, he spent two years regularly going before the governor and his wife, sharing the good news of the gospel so that he might see, hear, and respond to who Jesus is. He always defends himself, but his main concern is not to be set free. His goal is to ultimately share the gospel as often as he can. We see it throughout the book of Acts when he encounters hostile crowds, Felix and his wife, with Festus, later on with King Agrippa, and even the emperor himself, Nero, that he does so not to win his innocence, not to win his escape, but so that he might make much of the name of Jesus. We know the teachings about, from Jesus about loving our enemies. We do. And it's such a countercultural thing that I, I think this is something that seems to be the craziest thing you could say in this world. Love your enemies. I mean, it's just wild to think that Jesus said, love your enemies. I mean, this is perhaps throughout human history. I'm sure it's the least popular idea that's ever been experienced in human history. I'm sure it's the one that we've had the hardest time following throughout human history. Why? Because our natural desire, probably because we're broken by sin, is our natural desire is to hate our enemies, not to love them. Just think of someone who has wronged you, and what is it that you hope happens to them? Maybe you're not hoping for death and damnation, but you're probably hoping, I hope you get a flat tire. I hope you're minorly inconvenienced on your day because you definitely did that to me. We're not people who say, I hope you have a great day after they cut us off in traffic. We know that. We live that. Our natural desire is not to love our enemies. Yet Jesus understood this because he knows us. He knew us perfectly. He knows exactly who we are. And he still gave us this command. Really, Jesus not only commanded this, that we are to love our enemies, but he also shows us exactly what this is supposed to look like. We, as sinful people, at one time were enemies of God. Ephesians 2 uses the language, it describes us as people who were in active rebellion against God. God's up here giving us his rules and telling us he reigns, and we're just going, who do you think you are? Active rebellion against God and his ways. Yet Jesus, he wasn't just nice to us. He wasn't just kind to us. 
He didn't just say, bless your heart or anything like that. No, what did Jesus do? He loved us sacrificially, even while we were his enemies. He loved us sacrificially, even while we were his enemies. His love for his enemies were so great that he even prayed for the people who were crucifying him. Put that in context. Jesus is literally being murdered on the cross. And rather than rail against the Roman soldiers, rather than rail against the Jewish leaders, rather than cry out against Pontius Pilate or anyone else, what does Jesus do? He says, I'm praying for these people. Because, Father, they know not what they do. They are in ignorance. They are trapped by their sin and shame. Father, restore them to their rightful place before you. Bring them into this family so that this sacrifice has meaning. Lord, I'm here to die, and I'm here to die for these very people who are burying the nails in my hands and feet, who are shoving the spear in my side. I'm here to die for my enemies. This is what loving your enemies looks like. This is what loving our enemies looks like. Practically, what does that look like? How do we live that? How do we model that? I know it's a challenge, but I want to encourage you to do something this week for me. I want you to think of someone in your life who's wronged you. Someone who's committed injustice and evil against you. It could be minor. Maybe it's severe. Maybe it's major. But I want to encourage you to consider to pray for that person every day this week. It doesn't count if you're praying hellfire and brimstone upon them. That doesn't count, right? We're not praying for them to go away. But rather, we're praying for God to bring His love and His mercy to bear in their life. We're going to do something crazy and pray for God's blessing upon their life. We're going to pray that God would work in our lives and in their lives. That's a different conversation than praying for God to bring his wrath and fire upon them. That's easy to do. Anybody can do that. But if we're going to live as Christ has called us to live, we're going to live as Paul demonstrates to us, we're going to love our enemies enough that we will pray for God to bless them, even though they have wronged us, and maybe they haven't even made forgiveness or even steps towards that. Pray for your enemies this week. Now maybe you hear all this and you're thinking, okay, remember that God's working. I'm supposed to love my enemies. Why am I doing this? What's the point of this? Why would Paul live this way? Why would Jesus live this way? Why should I live this way? Well, I would submit to you that Paul lived this way. Jesus lived this way because of this reason. They rested their hope upon an eternal God. That is what you and I are to do. That we are to rest our hope upon the eternal God. See, throughout this section of Acts, we don't see Paul acting like a man who's condemned. We don't see him acting irrational or frantic. He's not desperate from what we read. He's not trying to tunnel out the prison cell. He's not patching an elaborate escape scheme. No. He handles himself like a man who is confident in what awaits him. How can this make any sense? 
How is Paul, who is friendless, powerless, trapped in a prison cell for two years, how can he behave with confidence and assurance that this will end well for him? Frankly, he should have no confidence by our standards. Yet, as he's preparing to go before the very emperor of the Roman Empire, a man who has gone through history being proclaimed as an enemy of Christianity, he has confidence. He has assurance. He has hope. What's the secret? Paul is confident here because he knows that regardless of what happens to him in this present life, his eternal heavenly inheritance is secure. Paul actually wrote about this earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians as he's writing to the church in Corinth to encourage them just a few short years before this. He writes these words, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He sums it all up in 2 Corinthians 5.7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. This is why Paul is confident. The words that he wrote in 2 Corinthians, the things of this world, they are perishing. They will fall away. If my hope, if my rest is found in things of this world, what are they going to do? One day they will fail me. One day they will pass away. One day they'll be gone. So why should I put my hope and my rest in these things that are perishing? No, I'll put my hope and my rest in that that is eternal. That is my heavenly inheritance. The God who's the one who anchors my faith. The God who has promised to sustain me through this life into the next. Where I will find my rest is not in my present circumstances, but in God himself and the promises that he has made to me. This is why Paul is confident. He truly doesn't know how this earthly portion of his life will end. He doesn't know that he's going to be murdered by the emperor for his faith. He doesn't know that he's going to die a martyr's death. He may be sitting in his cell thinking, I'm going to walk out of here. I'm going to preach the gospel to Rome, Romans, and then I'm going to go to Spain, and then I'm going to go do this. Maybe he's a little more pessimistic thinking, there's no way on earth I'm getting out of this. Regardless of what his present circumstances are, what his hopes and dreams are, he says, there's one thing that I rest myself upon. There's one thing that I trust in, and that is the promises of God and who he is. See, Paul understands this truth. Today, today we may be a victim, but we will be a victor at the end. Today we may experience injustice, but one day he will give us justice. He does this because at one time we were an enemy of him. 
but now he calls us child. One day we will sit triumphantly in the new heavens and a new earth where God reigns over all, where sin and death is no more, where shame has gone away, where the grave is gone, and we will reign in the new heavens and a new earth, rejoicing with our Lord and Savior because He has fulfilled all the promises He made. You see, this is the hope that the gospel gives us in the middle of struggles and trials. You see, it empowers us to face the struggles in this world by giving us a hope that is beyond this world. It empowers us to face the struggles, the difficulties, the hardships we face in this world because we have a hope that is beyond this world. My friends, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the hope that I pray you have. And for all of us, whether you're here as a Christ follower or maybe you're here as someone who's not sure about where you stand, here is what I know. Every one of us wants a hope and a certainty like this in our lives. And I'm here to tell you the only way we find this hope and this certainty will not come through earthly possessions. It will not come through titles. It will not come through money. It will not come through anything on this earth. The only place we will find hope and certainty is through our King Jesus. And so if you're here and you're looking for hope, you're looking for certainty, I don't care where you're at spiritually. The only answer for you and I is to look to the King of kings and Lord of lords and cry out to Him for that hope and that certainty. And so today, we all have an opportunity to go before the Lord and do that. Here in the next few moments, I'm going to have a time of prayer where there'll be a few moments of silent prayer. And then I'll lead us in a prayer rejoicing in what God has done for us today. You'll have opportunity to go before the Lord on your own in that moment. And I'll be praying for you. And even afterwards, as our worship team leads us in our final song today, there's opportunity for you to come forward and receive prayer from myself or anyone else here who loves Jesus. Even afterwards, the prayer line isn't closed because we can still pray and interact and love and care for you. But I want to assure you of this truth. If you're looking for confidence, for hope, for rest in this life, you will not find it in this world. You'll find it in the next. That is with Jesus, with God himself. It's the only source of hope and life we have. So if I may, could we go to the Lord in prayer together? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we come to you, we come to you longing for, for hope, for rest, for encouragement. Lord, I, I don't pretend to know the needs and desires and struggles of every man, woman, and child here, Lord. But I do rest in this fact that you do know all of these struggles. You know the hardships we face. You know the challenges we experience. You know the things that we are walking through, Lord. And in the midst of those, we rest in this truth that you are a good God who loves his children. And that if even earthly parents can give good gifts to their children, 
How much greater can our Heavenly Father, who is good and perfect, do good in the lives of His children? So Lord, we come to you regardless of where our position is, whether we're struggling with our faith, whether we don't believe in you. Maybe we're not sure. Maybe we're healthy and growing and thriving, Lord. But what I know for every person here in the sound of my voice, what we need is a greater measure of you in our life. What we need is a hope, a confidence, an assurance that comes from heaven above. So Lord, we ask you in this time, on this day, would you give us the grace and peace of Jesus Christ? Could we receive this by calling out to you, Lord, repenting of our sin, trusting in the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior? And from this day forth, may we have a rest and assurance that we will dwell in the heavenly places with God our Father. Lord, give us this grace. Give us this mercy. And bless us today with your presence and with your power. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing in this world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.